And now our scripture reading today is from the Gospel of John, chapter 3, verses 1 through 15. And this is on pages 887 and 888 in the Pew Bible. And if you don't own a Bible, please feel free to grab one of those Bibles. We'd love for you to take that home as a gift from us to you. And again, it's John 3, verses 1 through 15. Now, this, now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born again when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sounds, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you, did, you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who has descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, good morning, Brookside. Um, I'm Tom Nelson. I have the joy of uh, being a part of the Christ Community Teaching Team, and uh, I'm glad to be here. You know, you, you worship in the most beautiful space. That means you're the most beautiful people, right? A Christ community. Uh, don't tell the other campuses I said that, but uh, it's great to be with you, and wonderful to see familiar faces and some new faces, and I hope I have the opportunity uh, after the service to greet you if I've not had that joy. But my name is Tom Nelson again, and I'm so delighted to uh, bring God's Word to you this morning. If I were to ask you this question, what is the greatest obstacle to your faith, what would be your immediate response? Perhaps you might be like me, since I'm a doubting Thomas by nature, you may say doubts. Uh, doubts about whether God is really real, whether I can maintain my intellectual integrity and be a Christian whether God is simply an imaginary cosmic friend. Doubts can be a challenge to faith, can't they, for all of us? But also desires. Desires are a good thing. We are desiring creatures, are we not? We have desires for pleasures, for success, for accomplishment, for meaning. Some of us for fame and wealth, for having awesome friends. But sometimes desires can kind of crowd out any time for spiritual contemplation and reflection. And for some of us who live a very busy life, uh, distractions can get in our way. Uh, distractions often of the demands of schedules at school or homework or a busy life, a busy workplace, the demands of small kiddos, that's a big one. And it leaves us little time for thinking about spiritual matters. But what if I were to say to you that there's something even more devastating to authentic faith? more of a greater obstacle to your faith than even doubts or desires or distractions, how would you respond? 
that lurking in your heart and mind, there is perhaps the greatest peril to authentic faith. What is that? Well, I want to suggest to you that the greatest peril to your faith and mine is religiosity. Because I believe woven in the very fabric of our being is a couple of contrasting impulses. First, there's an irreligious impulse, is there not? Sort of a rebellion against God, kind of doing our own thing. All of us wrestle with that at times, do we not? But also, there's this other religious impulse. Not of rebelling against God, but trying to please God, doing God's thing my own way. And deeply, this is a struggle of respectable religiosity. Now, one of Christ Community's good friends and a professor at USC who is now uh, with Christ, Dr. Dallas Willard, who is a philosophy professor at USC, describes, I think, the American church in this greatest threat to authentic faith of respectable religiosity. And he says this, he says that the number one mission field (laughs) in the United States is the church. Hmm. Perhaps he's onto something. Perhaps the greatest peril to your life and to mine, to authentic faith, is not doubt. It is not desires that are disordered. It is not distractions of a busy life. It is the propensity we have to do God's thing our own way, to be respectable and religious. Now, if you've already turned your Bible in the Pew Bible, I want you to go to John chapter 3 with me, our text this morning. Because John reminds us of how we are to confront this greatest threat of the human soul. Let's remember, this is the third message in our series this fall. In John chapter 1, as we open this marvelous text, we observe Jesus listening and interacting with the skeptical heart. In chapter 2, last week, we watched Jesus interact and deal with the satisfied heart. So you have John unpacking and Jesus' encounter with very different kinds of people, the skeptical heart, the satisfied heart. And today, we have the poster boy for the religious heart. And in this text, I find three great perils that affect your life and mine, the peril of respectable religiosity. And I would like to use these three perils to frame the progression of our text this morning. So again, if you have your Bible open, I encourage you to turn with me to John chapter 3 and begin as the story begins in verses 1 and 2. The story begins that we're going to look at this morning is a nighttime visit, and I want to reread verses 1 and 2 to set the context of this marvelous story. John writes, now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus. He was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He comes to Jesus at night and he says, Rabbi... Now, both of these guys are respected rabbis, so that's the right title of address. We know you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one can perform these miraculous signs you are doing if God were not with him. Now, let's recall that the Apostle John is giving us a lens of Jesus up close and personal. John is standing there, perhaps with a group of other disciples, or probably chilling out at night, and there's a knock on the door, a surprising visit. And standing in front of the door, imagine the opening the door. John probably opens the door. One of the disciples, Jesus is probably chilling out somewhere. And John sees this respectable figure in front of him. And what an impressive figure Nicodemus is. John, in his brilliant literature, just gives us a few words that capture a remarkable portrait. 
he tells us that Nicodemus was a Pharisee. And that meant he was a very devout, religious man. He had an impeccable religious pedigree. And John also wants us to know that he has risen to the very top of his career. He is at the very top of religiosity as the teacher of Israel, as you will say later. So what we need to grasp as we enter this story is Nicodemus is the who's who in a community. And what we understand, and we'll see this more in the text later, is Nicodemus was wealthy. He was highly educated. He was highly respectable. He was most likely very kind and generous, and Jesus cares about him too. Nicodemus is the kind of person you'd want for a neighbor. He not only bring greater prestige and raise your property values in your neighborhood, you'd want to say, hey, Nicodemus lives here. You wouldn't call him Nick because Nick is really Dr. Rabbi, the Honorable Nicodemus. So you get the picture that this guy is really an impressive dude. You would never call him Nick, no matter what age. It would be Dr. The Honorable, the Right Reverend, the Rabbi Nicodemus. So you get the picture of how John must have responded when this person of such high stature stands at the door. But John also makes an important point here, and every word matters. So he's beginning to give us a nuance of a double entendre. That means a double meaning. John is good at this throughout his Gospels. If you want to see his brilliant literature as it lays down the tracks of meaning, you have this picture. He notices, he says, Jesus pays a, or Nicodemus pays a visit to Jesus at night. Do you see that in the text? Our first thought is, good grief, that sounds like a triviality. But John is doing something really important here, and scholars throughout history have wondered, what is this deal about the night? There are many reasons that John may have said this, perhaps. We don't know Nicodemus' motivation, but just let's walk in his sandals for a moment. We know that Jesus is very controversial, and Nicodemus could have come in the evening. It's, the language is late at night. It's a later night visit than normal. That's the picture of the Greek text. Nicodemus may have come out of the, under the veil of secrecy. He didn't really want to be seen with Jesus, but he had curiosity. That could be it. But equally true in rabbinical literature is that rabbis who respected one another and wanted a conversation, didn't do it during the day, they stopped by and visited at the night, sort of a respectable, leisurely visit that gave them the time to interact. So we don't know exactly what John is doing here. But we do know that John is doing a double meaning. He is saying that Nicodemus came to Jesus at night, and this nightness that he came into, if I may use that language, is a double meaning. It is a reflection of the shadow of Nicodemus's heart. Nicodemus is walking at night, but he's walking in spiritual darkness. So John wants us as a reader to be let in on something important that will matter in just a moment. And we also know that Nicodemus brings more to the encounter than the clothes on his back. What Nicodemus brings in this first century story is spiritual blindness in his heart. He has amazing religious pedigrees. He has religious devotion. And we understand that Nicodemus arrives at the doorstep of Jesus thinking he has an advantage over others. But he doesn't. Nicodemus thinks he really knows God, but in reality, as we will see in this story, he really doesn't know God at all. Now, of course, Nicodemus doesn't know he doesn't know, and that's the problem. So as the story opens, John wants us to see the peril of the religious heart 
And the first parallel we see here is that we think as religious people, we have an advantage when we don't. Isn't it easy for all of us, especially if we've been in church a long time, to look down on others who are not as religious as we are? We may think that somehow we are better than others who do all those bad things or live a certain lifestyle, right? We sort of often tell ourselves that, don't we? I find myself doing that at times myself. We think that because of our service in church or our education or our Bible knowledge or our Bible reading or our giving to the church or our volunteer work in the community, that somehow that gives us an inside track with Jesus. This is where Nicodemus was. And he was blinded by a respectable religiosity. See, all of us have this tendency in our heart, don't we? I do that we begin to sort of think the good things we do for God and others. These are good things. But we begin to think they sort of make us something important. We sort of earn a right badge with God. Nicodemus thinks he really has an advantage because of his pedigree. But Jesus is about to go pop on his religious prideful bubble. Because respectable religiosity, when it encounters Jesus, goes poof. And you will notice in verse 3, Jesus' amazing response to Nicodemus. Notice verse 3. In reply, Jesus declares, I tell you the truth. This is a real strong, emphatic statement of authority. It's, we literally get the Hebrew as amen, amen. And they are speaking in Hebrew or, or Aramaic here, and John will translate it into Greek for the world. So Jesus is immediately saying authoritatively as a rabbi, amen, amen, which is a Hebrew word, this is how it is. He speaks with authority. He says, amen, amen, this is authority. I tell you the truth. No one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again or born from above. Now, if you put yourself in Nicodemus's sandals, I don't think Nicodemus, Dr. Nick, the most honorable reverend rabbi Nick, I don't think he was expecting this reply from Jesus. What do you think? If you were Nicodemus coming to Jesus as one of the leaders of Israel, one of the highest privileges and powerful people in all of Jerusalem, and you knock on Jesus' door, and you give him a respectful greeting, you'd expect a respectful greeting back, would you not? But John goes out of his way to show how Jesus puts Nicodemus back on his heels. You would expect, dear Nicodemus, for Jesus to say something like this, Dr. Nicodemus, it is such an honor for me to have you visit me, someone of your learning and stature. I have read all your books or manuscripts. I'm a big fan. That's what you would expect. But here in verse 3, we're shocked. It's clear that in the story, Jesus is not impressed with religious credentials. Isn't that something? But what Jesus is really concerned about is Nicodemus's impoverished religious heart. Now, let's remember that this story is bridged with chapter 2. There are no chapter breaks in the original text. So, to understand the story, we have to look back to 2.25, because the thread of continuity of meaning flows out of verse 25. Remember back in chapter 1, 
John presents Jesus as the eternal Logos. The Word become flesh. This is the Son of God. This is the Messiah. And in verse 25, he reminds us that Jesus is not only the one who has supernatural power to turn water into wine. Jesus, the Son of God, the Messiah, has supernatural knowledge. He knows every human thought. That's your thought and my thought. Kind of scary sometimes, isn't it? And Jesus knows every thought of Nicodemus before Nicodemus can even think it. So Jesus, when Nicodemus arrives at his door, Jesus gets right to the heart of the matter, which is the matter of Nicodemus's heart. That's what Jesus does to you and me. All the fluff is gone. All the credentials are gone. Doesn't mean they don't have some value. Jesus is not anti-intellectual or studying. But the point is, he gets to the heart. And notice in the text, there is a sense if you feel John's writing and enter into the story in that first century home, that Nicodemus is not only shocked by Jesus' reply, Nicodemus, the man of words, the man of letters, has few words to say. Nicodemus is knocked off balance here. And there is a delicious irony, if we are ready to hear it, in the text. And that is, Nicodemus, a man who prided himself in words, has no words to say. And I have a sense that John is sort of chuckling in the background. Here is someone who is eloquent, brilliant, but he has nothing to say. So what happens in your life when you have nothing to say? (laughs) You ever been there? You know, maybe it's a job interview. You've had that awkward moment when everything gets quiet. You ever been there? When the interviewer gets quiet, you get quiet. Or you're going out on a date, and after a while there's this quietness between you two, right? Or you're at a Thanksgiving dinner. This is always when family dynamics come out. And you're at the table, it's a fun dinner, and all of a sudden somebody says something controversial, political, brings up something, and all of a sudden things get quiet. You're in there? There's this awkward silence in the text that fills the first century room. You feel it. Nicodemus feels it most. And what do you do when there's dead air space? (laughs) You say stupid things. I've been there. You try to fill the air. And that's what Nicodemus does. Nicodemus can't handle that dead air space. So what Nicodemus does, he basically says, Jesus, how is that possible? I mean, he's just not thinking very well. He says, how can you be born when you're old? You can't do that. That's impossible. Not as an adult. You you sense what's going on here? This is an awkward conversation now. And Nicodemus doesn't know how to handle it. So Jesus says to him, basically, Nicodemus, with all due respect, you're missing it. You, want, you came here to talk to me as a representative, and the pronouns here go back and forth, individual and plural. So Nicodemus is recognizing, and Jesus is recognizing that Nicodemus has come not only in his own accord, but in response to the leadership community he's a part of. So Jesus is saying, Nicodemus, you and your cohorts, that's the, the text, 
want to speak about Theology 401, and we need to start with Theology 101. That's hard for a doctor, reverend, very educated person to hear, isn't it? Now, let's remember Nicodemus has spent his entire life learning and teaching theology. He spent his whole life with his nose in the manuscripts of the Torah, all his life of the prophets. Nicodemus' world, his work, his life revolves around his religious faith. So when you get near Nicodemus, you don't even have to get near this guy. You smell religion everywhere. Now, I grew up in the North Country where coffee was king even before Starbucks came. So I've always been ahead of the curve when it comes to coffee. I love coffee. I loved coffee when I was a teenager. And I love the smell of coffee. In fact, home to me is going down to my kitchen. From my upstairs, it's just like going back home when I smell coffee. But have you ever been around someone who works at Starbucks? And they've been on a long shift. Maybe you work at Starbucks or a coffee shop. And you walk in the room or you walk in home and all you smell is coffee, right? From their hair to their feet, everything is coffee. And after a while, it just gets kind of yucky. It's like time to take a shower. This is how Nicodemus smelled. Ever been around people like that? They're just not even real. They're just so filled with religion. This just, just oozes from them, right? You can't even have a normal conversation about the royals or the chiefs or whatever it was. This is where Nicodemus is. And notice, as a Pharisee, Nicodemus, if we understand the culture, was a part of a very prestigious elite religious club. Think of it this way. Much like you think of someone who is a Navy SEAL or a Top Gun pilot, Nicodemus is the cream of the cream. Nicodemus' life, since this high, has been all about fidelity and religious duty. He breathes spiritual discipline. Yet the inconvenient truth that Jesus hits him right between the eyes with is he's missing the most important thing, therefore he's missing everything. Now notice verses 5 through 8. As the story continues, Jesus has this conversation. He answers him, he says, I tell you the truth. Notice the different article, the truth, not a truth. No one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to the Spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. For the wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Now, across time and cultural location and language, that's kind of hard to understand, isn't it? What's going on here? What he is saying, what Jesus is saying, again, these are two rabbis speaking Aramaic or Hebrew together. John is translating into common Greek. And Jesus is saying to Nicodemus, Nick, maybe he didn't say Nick, I don't know. He says, you can't even see the kingdom of God or the reign or rule of God. That's the idea. And you can't even enter it. What is Jesus saying? He's saying, Nicodemus, you think you are very close to God, but you are as far from God as I can imagine. Well, you can't even see it. You can't even enter. You're so far away. This must have stunned him. 
And what Jesus is saying is saying the necessity of a spiritual birth is like basic arithmetic. One plus one equals two. This is theology 101. And later on in verse 9, you'll notice here's a subtle moment. Jesus will chat him a bit in verse 9 to say, you're the teacher, literally emphatic. You are the teacher. You are the highest teacher, the most brilliant teacher of Israel. And you don't know this? Hmm. Wow. Pretty intense interchange. Now, with words like spirit and wind, these two rabbis are having a conversation at another level. That is, rabbis had what we call a midrash, a commentary about authoritative text. So what is going on here under the surface is Rabbi Nicodemus and Rabbi Jesus are talking about the wind, the spirit, and both words in Hebrew are ruach, the wind, the spirit. We read this, it's like, what is this? But there's no misunderstanding that Nicodemus and Jesus know exactly what they're doing. Because these words... Wind and spirit and new life are from the prophet Ezekiel. They knew that. For in Ezekiel chapter 36 and 37, the prophet Ezekiel says when the Messiah comes, the new covenant is going to be about new creation. The prophet Ezekiel said God is not going to give his people more rules. Amen. He's going to give them a new heart. He's going to change his people from the inside out. So when we look back to the prophet Ezekiel, this is the conversation that's going on. And in Ezekiel chapter 35, verses 25 through 30, uh, 36, 25 through 27, we read here this language. And I, I want to read it for us because it's so important in terms of the conversation among two rabbis. He says, I will sprinkle clean water on you. This is what the prophet Ezekiel says. And you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart. Notice the language. I will put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. Notice, I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. The greatest and most pernicious idol of God's covenant people was religion. A religiosity rather than new birth. So Jesus gets right to the heart of it when he's having this conversation with Nicodemus. And right after chapter 36, if you've read the Old Testament, and I encourage you to read this, right after it is one of the most famous visions of the whole Testament. Every rabbi knew this. Beginning theology knew this. Ezekiel 37, maybe you haven't read that recently, you know, it gets tucked in the Old Testament, but it's a major text. And that's a picture of the Valley of Dry Bones. <laughs> And God takes the prophet Ezekiel and shows him this massive valley with human skeletons not even connected. They're just spread right out. So they are dead, dead. I mean, the idea they are really dead. These aren't zombies that have some flesh walking around at Halloween. These are dead, dead people. And there are a lot of them. So God says to Ezekiel, son of man, this the prophet, can these bones live? And Ezekiel goes, Right. It's impossible unless the one who created the bones in the first place recreate them. So God says to the prophet Ezekiel, same Hebrew word, rock, rock, speak to the wind, breathe, breathe. And the breath of God comes across the valley and these dead, dry bones that are scattered become living people, the living people of God. Wow. 
Nicodemus, Jesus is saying, it's like the rushing wind. Do you see it in the text? You can't control it. You can't even see it. All you see is its effects. Nicodemus, it's about God's work for you. What God is going to do in your heart, not what you do for God. This new creation life does not come from doing good things. It's a gift from God above, period. It's not external religious conformity. It's internal creation that only God can do in your heart. This is not a new idea. Jesus and Nicodemus having a conversation. This is what the prophet Ezekiel said. And you don't get this? See, a very devout Nicodemus thinks he's good enough for God, but he isn't. He thinks he has earned it, but he hasn't. He thinks somehow he just needs to get better. What he needs is to be made completely new, and so do you and I. And so here is the third, second peril that comes out of this text. And that is the danger, the perilous danger for all of us, every one of us here, that somehow we think we are good enough, but we really aren't. There's a very subtle spiritual blindness that comes over us when we do lots of good things for the wrong reason, and pastors and Christian leaders, this is an occupational hazard for us. We are very vulnerable to that. The prophet Isaiah tells us in Isaiah 64, all our righteous deeds, all the religious stuff we do compared to God's standard are like filthy rags. This is why to the religious heart, the good news of the gospel of grace often is initially heard as bad news. Why? Because our whole life, like Nicodemus, is built on what we do rather than what Jesus has done for us. Nicodemus, Jesus looks him right in the eyes, I'm convinced. I mean, we're about this far apart. As Semitic people having a conversation, they weren't way away. They were right together, eyeball to eyeball. He says, Nicodemus, you're wearing some very respectable religious robes, but God sees you as having filthy rags. You think you can make yourself a better person, you need to become a new person. It's not about you getting better, it's about you starting over, Nick. This point in the conversation with Jesus, Nicodemus' respectable religious world is unraveling before his eyes. And he says, all he can say is, how can these things be? Jesus points Nicodemus back, notice, to the Old Testament again. He points him back to Moses in the text from Numbers chapter 21. And that's a rather remote text for most of us. It's where God's covenant people coming out of Egypt were bitten by these poisonous snakes, and they were saved. They were rescued when they looked upon the serpent, the bronze serpent that Moses had placed on a pole. They couldn't save themselves. They had to look up on the pole. And so Jesus picks this picture of Moses, and he connects it to himself. He says, the Son of Man, that's a picture of him, is going to also be on a pole. He's going to be on a cross, and those who will place their faith in him will be rescued. And notice the whole story builds to verse 15. This is the end of the conversation, most scholars think between Nicodemus and Jesus. Where is the story going? Here's where the story's going. It says that whoever believes in him, Messiah Jesus, may have eternal life, may have the life they were designed to live in the Garden of Eden. See, for much of Nicodemus' life, he thought he knew God, but he doesn't. He thought he had believed in God, but he hasn't, and that's the third peril of the religious heart, thinking we have believed when we haven't. 
See, often we think it's believing the right things rather than understanding it's believing the right person. Nicodemus has all the right words down. He did all the church things. All along, Nicodemus' object of his faith has been himself. And Nicodemus' faith is faulty not because of its lack of sincerity, but the improper object of which it has been placed. If the object of our faith, friends, is off, then our faith is off. And we hear a lot today about the importance of faith. And it's important. But if the object of our faith is not right, it's a perilous thing. It's not how much faith you have, or even the sincerity of your faith. It is the worthiness of what you place it in. I'm reminded of this often as I travel quite a bit these days. Spend a lot of time in airports. It's not always fun, but I'm never afraid of flying. Why? Because I have confidence in the maintenance crew of the plane, the engineers who designed it, the pilots who fly it, the traffic controllers who guide us. I don't need a lot of faith to fly when I know the object is worthy of it. The key is to know who we place our faith in. True gospel faith is not about what we do. It's about what Jesus has done for us. See, Nicodemus' heart is a mirror of your heart and mine. It's a heart that needs not renovation, but regeneration. That means new life completely. It is a heart that God does not just patch up and make better. It's one that he makes new completely. This is what Jesus teaches. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus' death and resurrection, when we in faith and repentance embrace him, are given brand new life as a grace gift. So let me ask you, have you experienced a new birth? Have you experienced it? I'll never forget the day when our two children were born, Schaefer and Sarah. If you've ever had the joy of either birthing children or being there, you know that it's an out-of-body experience like nothing else. I remember holding Schaefer and Sarah in my hands and looking at their little fingers and toes. I don't know, I just ripped that right away, the beautiful little fingers and toes. And it was just like I was a spectator in something grand. As for Schaefer and Sarah, I didn't know much about it, but they had very little to do with their birth, didn't they? But their birth opened up a brand new world, unimaginable to them. And it also made them part of a new family. So Jesus utilizes this metaphor of a new birth to remind us that just like physical birth, spiritual birth is not something we make happen. It is something that happens to us. And spiritual birth invites us and welcomes us to a new family called the local church. We enjoy this new life and we grow together in it by his grace. We are not spiritually born because we show up at church. Whether that's once a year or every time the door opens. No more than being in a garage makes us a car. The Christian faith, properly understood, is about radical change that God does through his son from the inside out. It's not, hear me carefully, it's not about trying to be better on our own, but becoming brand new. The Apostle Paul, who is just like Nicodemus, until he met the risen Christ on the road to Damascus, he was just like him. He was a poster boy for a religious heart, a Pharisee. And writing to the church of Corinth, he says in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, if anyone is in Christ, what? They are a brand new creation. 
Old things have passed away, new things have come. He's saying just like the spirit that hovered over the water in Genesis 1-2 that created all things from God's very word, you and I need to be recreated, recreated by God like that. If we're to live the life that Genesis 1 and 2 points us to, the life we long to. Is Jesus your Lord and Savior? What is your heart telling you this morning? Can we have that conversation briefly? Jesus gets to the heart of the matter with Nicodemus, and he gets to your heart. He loves you. He wants what's best for you. He has a life he created you to live. He has a life he wants you to live, and you long to live that life. People often ask me the question, Pastor Tom, how do I know I'm born again? How do I know I've experienced this new birth? Let me suggest four diagnostic questions, wherever you are in your spiritual life, that I think are helpful here. First, who are you really trusting in now? If I were to ask you, if you were to die and stand before God today, a holy, perfect God, and ask you, why should I allow you fellowship with me for all eternity, what would you say? See, if you respond to God, I'm a good person, I did all this good stuff, then you are placing your faith in yourself and your eternal destiny in yourself. And that is extremely perilous. The only appropriate answer any of us could give, a holy God, is that we have placed our complete trust in Jesus and what he has done for us. Who are you trusting in? Secondly, how are you seeing differently now? One of the evidences of being born again, friends, is that we increasingly begin to see the world differently. Jesus reminds Nicodemus that unless we are born spiritually, we can't even see his kingdom, his reign, the life of God in the world. And the Apostle Paul in Acts 26, 18 gives us this picture of the gospel. He says that open our eyes that we may see the difference between darkness and light and goodness and evil of what is right and wrong. True Christian faith not only changes our hearts, it gives us brand new eyes where we begin to see the world as God sees it. It changes how we see our neighbor now, how we view our suffering now, how we view our work, our relationship with our friends, our spouse, our girlfriend, our boyfriend, how we see the future. Third, how are you loving differently now? Few things are more evident in spiritual birth than reordering what our hearts truly love. St. Augustine, our early church father, said that, that the true indicator of gospel faith is not just believing differently, it's loving differently. Isn't it fascinating, the same writer who wrote this story, the writer John, in a small letter called 1 John in the Bible, pens these words in 1 John 4, 7. He says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And notice, whoever loves has been what? Born of God and knows God. Hear that birth language? He's saying, our love for our brothers and sisters in Christ is one of the greatest evidence of truly knowing God. When we are born again, we not only love God differently, we love his broken world differently, but we love other brothers and sisters in Christ differently, and we love the bride of Christ, the local church, our faith family. Do you love and cherish the church? One of the evidences of new birth is that we deeply love what Jesus loves. Lastly, how are you living differently now? When we embrace the gospel and are born again, we begin to see how the gospel speaks into all of life, every human space of existence, every nook and cranny of our life. 
out of gratitude of what Jesus has done and a new heart motivation with the tailwind of the Holy Spirit and the fruit of the Spirit, we begin to change from the inside out. We treat others differently. We treat our spouse differently, our parents differently. We forgive others differently. We spend our money and wealth differently. We approach our classes at school differently. We approach our work differently. And we want to share our faith with others who maybe don't know Jesus. So how does Nicodemus' story end? We don't know in John 3, but we get a glimpse in John 7 and then in John 19. The night that Jesus was visited by Nicodemus was a watershed moment in Nicodemus' life. We know this. In John chapter 19, along with all the other gospel writers, they all make it a point to tell us that Nicodemus finds his faith at a crossroads, and it's, a, it's, a, it's the crossroads of the cross of Jesus. Nicodemus joins another influential, wealthy leader of Jerusalem named Joseph of Arimathea. And they secure from Pilate, the Roman governor, Jesus' crucified body. And it is amazing to me that they give Jesus a burial, not of a criminal, but of the King of kings, Lord of lords. Nicodemus, once in spiritual darkness of respectable religiosity, now walks in the light of gospel faith and new birth it brings. Nicodemus reminds all of us there is good news for even the most respectable religious heart. Let's pray. With your heads bowed and your eyes closed this morning, what would Jesus say to you? How would he get to the heart of the matter of your heart? Maybe you're here this morning and the prayer of your heart is simply, God, if you're real, please show me. And maybe that's your prayer. And maybe you've been in church a lot or you're coming back to church and you realize your faith is faulty. May your prayer be, Lord Jesus, I trust you now. I trust your sacrificial death on the cross, your atoning death on the cross, your resurrection, and I trust in you. Change me from the inside out. Lord Jesus, guard all of us from the peril. Guard me from the peril of a respectable religiosity. Give us new hearts, we pray. Amen.